life, and this has nothing to do with, I found out after I gave the title of this message that there's a, something called the walking dead. I don't know what that is outside of this passage, but I do know what it is in this passage. So be aware, I am not trying to be uh, culturally, or I am not trying to be uh, in tune with what's going on. It was by uh, really God's sovereign grace, because I deal with the passages that are at hand, and I dealt with the walking dead that's in the passage and how they're given life, now that we settle that. Okay? Today we are here. Why? Why are we here today? We are here to worship, right? To worship, to be a part of a worship service. For what purpose? To praise God, right? Why else would you come to a collective meeting and take up time out of your morning or early afternoon to be together with a group of people that you didn't even grow up with who are from different parts of the world, why else would you be here? You come to worship, right? And part of the, the being here today, we have been here to witness also as part of that worship service a baptism of a single individual as part of that worship. But what really is going on? I want to challenge all of us here today. We talk about worship and, and what is really going on. Uh, are we here because of some religious ritual required by quote unquote churches or denominations? Uh, did we witness something today that is nothing more than a ritual that has to do with church and, and religion and maybe it's some type of uh, ritualistic uh, initiation to win some favor with God? Uh, is that why we are here? That we think of a worship service as a means by which we can win his favor, that we can make him accept us, that we can make him applaud us because we got out of bed, because we got here early, because we're taking time out of our schedule. And God, you ought to be impressed that uh, I've come here this morning to worship you. Uh, do, and by the way, some of the things that I'm mentioning today, I think it is a part of thinking. It's a part of where mankind is that we're doing God some type of favor and, and to come to an assembly together is some type of realistic or ritualistic and uh, requirements of some church and we got to do this to impress God. Others, maybe it's just because of emotional satisfaction that they feel good. What did you do today? I didn't go to the racetrack, I went to church. I went to a worship service. I did not have bacon and eggs this morning. I bypassed that so I could go worship God. Uh, whatever the reason might be. And we look at it that we feel good that we, we did something religious. So God ought to be pleased. He ought to be happy. I don't know what happens the rest of the week, but certainly should have been happy with us for a half an hour, uh, 15 minutes, or uh, whatever. Others may come to a worship service, let's think about this, simply out of morality. 
you know, you know, with all that I see going on, and I know that's in my life, there's got to be some moralness, and you know, to all of this. So maybe out of uh, guilt, I guess I I got to go once in a while. So it might be a good idea to show up, and and God ought to be impressed, and I'll feel good anyway. I feel better, and then they go out, and and uh, you know, all of a sudden the hamburger tasted better, or the golf uh, game got better. Or, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever, the relationships got better, and it must have been because I, I went to church. You know, what is going on here? What is this all about? What is this, this that we just witnessed? Is that all worship is? Is, is that what church, quote-unquote, really is? And is, is that what we're here on earth for, to just get involved in some type of religion and some type of emotional experience that will help us feel better about ourselves and hopefully God give us a pat on the back? I don't think so. And I think in the two texts, and I say the two texts, the text that's primarily before us and also your responsive reading, I think we'll get some answers to that. If you really want to know how to have a relationship with God, the answers are here. Now, it is rather interesting. I, I, you guys are sick of me saying this as a congregation, I know. But I can't help but give praise to God over the fact I, I have just never ceased to be amazed at how he brings things together. I didn't have one conversation with Tim till 15 minutes before uh, we got ready for the baptism and, and so forth. And he ends up quoting out of everything that I'm preaching in. So uh, it's amazing how God works, isn't it? I, I just, I am thrilled as a person when I see uh, God worked that way. But uh, I want you to know, and, and by the way, if you've been a believer for uh, a while, this context is really addressing believers, okay? We need to understand that. I don't, if you know me, I'm not looking to take anything out of a context, and I will refer to that and so forth. But there is so much depth and so much meaning because if we're honest with ourselves, and I don't know where a lot of you folks might be, or you don't know where my heart might be, and we might be impressing people with one thing when in, indeed inside is a whole different thing. Um, but people want to know, is, is there really a God, and can I really have a relationship with God, and what God, what does he expect of me? Well, I think we're going to get some answers as we come to the context, so at least uh, for the next 30 minutes or so, turn up your ears. And if you're a believer, don't turn it out because there should be a lot of evidence when we come to the end of this that it's really there. So let's look at some of the things and make it very simple. I've given you a very simple outline there in the bulletin to follow along with the message if you want to take notes for the benefit. And I encourage notes for this reason only. So you can go back and look at it yourself and check it out. Man's condition. It's given to us in the first three verses. <clears throat> so allow me to read the first three. Well, I don't know why I ask you that, because I'm going to do it anyway. In verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read it again. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. These three verses give us a wonderful synopsis of what the scriptures talk about 
and what God's real perspective is on man. And what it says in verse 1 is that while men were physically alive, they were spiritually dead. And truly, why I gave it the title, they were the walking dead. Look at it. It says, and you, <clears throat> excuse me, were dead in your trespasses and sins. How could you be dead and be alive? Well, that's the way men are. What do you mean? Physically alive, and if men would be at least honest enough to admit it, with no life or response to God. They might want to know God. They might want to pray. They might do things religiously, ritualistically, but there's no sense of a real relationship with him. Why? Because in that sense, they are dead. And when he says we were dead, it's a present active participle. That's important. Why? Because he's, really, it should be translated being dead, because that was the condition. They existed physically, and yet they were being dead. That is, they were dead. Dead how? Spiritually to God. There was no life there. How is that possible to exist physically alive and, and be in a condition of being dead? He says it because he, he goes on to say, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That is, the condition of death is by reason of their state, their nature. It's what it's dealing with. The natural man, the person that has come into this world physically, while may cry, I have just had the wonderful experience recently, as many of you know, uh, where there was a new grandchild born, and I just loved Joey as well as the rest of my grandchildren. Had a great time, had him on my knees just a couple of days ago and smiling and talking to him and wonderful and he cries and he does all these things because he's alive but while he's physically alive there's no nature as far as god's concerned because he is in trespasses and sin it's a condition that all men have and i will say a little bit more about that we're in the state of sin it, we are physically alive but dead um, be, by reason of the fact that we are sinners by reason of the fact, it is our nature. Since Adam fell in disobedience, though Adam was without sin at first, Adam disobeyed God, and now all of mankind's nature, as the scriptures tell us, is that we are children of wrath. We are children of the wrath of God. We are a sinner. Now, in the 21st century, it might not be politically correct to talk about sin, but God talks about sin, and it needs to be talked about. Why? Because we are all sinners. We are all sinners. What does that mean? We have missed the mark of God. We, are, we cannot measure up to the standards of righteousness with God. And you know what? If men and women were honest as they go through life, we are frustrated with it because we see the effects of sin with pain that enters our body, with the fact that we die, with the frustrations that we have, with the things that we do or think. And even though we profess ourselves to be very wise, we're not. All that to say that while people, while he is talking to believers who were in that condition, in the context, uh, the reality is that all people, while alive physically, are without a relationship with God. And it's also seen not only in their natural state, but in the walk 
that everyone has. If you look at verse 2, it goes on to talk about the walk. It says, in which you, that is, even the believers, formerly walked. You see, they were alive physically, but they were walking as dead people. And what did they, how did they walk? He says, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. What is he talking about? That, was the, that is the way that man lives. Man lives apart from God. We're not in his presence in the sense of in heaven. We don't live by his standards. We don't have his righteousness. We don't have that. And when we walk according to the course of this world, it's not just talking about planet Earth as far as a physical existing planet. It's talking about the thinking. It's talking about the values. It's talking about the standards uh, of the system, of the way the things are done. What it's dealing with in verse 2 is nothing more than humanism. Uh, man's thinking is that he is on top of everything. But it doesn't take you long to find out you're not. It doesn't take you long, and that's what it talks about. We walked according to the course of this world. Our thinking, our development was all humanism. Uh, for example, the, the concept of the world is that man is basically good. No, we're not. I love my grandson, Joey, and I, I want to be careful with my family, but you know the idea. I can tell you right now, my daughter and my son-in-law have a task before them, and it is not to train Joey to be bad. It is to train him to be good. Why? Because it is in his nature. It won't be long before he's going to be fighting with my other grandchildren with toys. Mine, 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 mine. It's going to happen. And, and the reality is, that is the course of this world. It's materialism. More, more, more. Give me more. More money. More possessions. Why? You're not taking it with you. And yet we want more. And then we don't want to go out and say that. We just think it inside. And we have that inside. Sexual immorality. That, all of these things is the, the concept. That is the course of the world. And that is the way the natural man lives. For his own thinking, for himself, for materialism, and for sexual satisfaction. Because that's what the world's all about. You see it everywhere in advertising. You see it everywhere. You can't get away from it. And that's the way the natural man walks. It's also in accordance with the prince of the power of the air. That's referring to Satan. Long story short, the scriptures clearly identify that as Satan. Now, it isn't that Satan's behind every corner, but he is by God's allowance. He is currently the ruler of this age, as the scriptures refer to it. And uh, we need to recognize that there's a war going on. But we walk without any question yielding to anything that he wants. And we are basically the sons of disobedience. That is, we don't follow God. It's a good summary. That is the walk of the natural man. Physically alive, but walking dead. Because there's no life with God. And that walk is seen as a walk that's after the thinking of the world, the philosophy of the world, thinking that will make them satisfied. And it's always interesting when you do a study of people who are very wealthy, uh, not just wealthy, but who thought they had it going, they gained fame and everything else, and then near the end of the life, 
You talk to them and they're saying, is that all there is? Why? Because it didn't satisfy. They spent their life adopting the philosophy of the world, following Satan, sexual immorality, all of that, and were disobedient to God, and it didn't work. And verse 3 brings us back to the reality, while it is a reminder to the believer, and that is the context, it is a reminder that all mankind is there. Because in verse 3 it says, among them, that is those who are still there, we too, even believers, all formally live that way. Why? Because all men are sinners and have come short of the glory of God. There isn't anyone in this room, even if I've never met you, that is not a sinner. You do not measure up to the standards of God. I don't measure up to the standards of God. No man has ever measured up to the standards of God apart from his own son, which we'll get to, and that is Jesus Christ. And we follow after that, but we try to, now you say, how does that relate to what you started with, Pastor Dan? We all try to make ourselves feel good about religion. We all try to make ourselves feel good about following some, following some ritualistic thing, thinking that will win favor with God. It will not. Why? We are dead. As a pastor, as well as a son and a brother, I have been at many a funeral. It's an unfortunate situation, but it's a reality of life. But I will tell you that whether it was a parent, whether it was a step-parent, whether it was a sibling, and I've been there, whether it was the funeral of a believer that I knew or a funeral of an unbeliever that I did not even know. I have never, ever, nor will I ever, attend a funeral in which that dead person had any response to anything that was going on around them. I can remember my dad's funeral as well now as when it happened. And there was all kinds of noise. I was a little boy. But there was all kinds of noise and chatter, and my dad never responded to any of it. He was dead. Do you get that? You say, of course I do. Get it spiritually. All men are dead without the ability to response. That's their nature. We're in sin. We follow these things because it's the normal thing for us to follow. And we're apart from the life of God. And that is what leads us to verse 4. We're all in that situation. We all had this manner of life. And if you're a believer today, you ought to thank God that he pulled you out of that. We're all sinners. There's nobody without sin. We've had the lusts of the flesh, that which makes us feel good, if you want to make it simple there in verse 3. Indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What do you mean the mind? Our choices. We've all followed our own choices. And most of the time, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, they don't come out too well. And the choices that the society pressures us to take and want to follow, they don't work out too well. And yet we follow them. We've all, we've all done it. And notice what it says in verse 3 before I get to verse 4. It says, and we're by nature again. That's the nature. What? Children of wrath. We're not children of God. Our society is taught abominably, in my opinion, 
that man is basically good. There's good characteristics that we have, but we're not basically good. We're mean. We hate people. We lie. We're self-centered. We'll turn on a dime against family. We will. And when then we say, but we're good. I'm always amazed when I watch something on TV about someone who's murdered somebody and some foolish person, in my opinion, comes on the TV and says, they're a basically good person. Really? And they just had no feeling whatsoever to go in and kill that family. And they're a good person? Hello? You see, we're not. We're not. And as a dead person, what can we do? Listen. Zero. Nada. Nothing. We can't do anything. If you're dead, you can't do anything. Religion's not going to cut it. You can go to church all your life. You can read your Bible all your life. You can be baptized 75 times. It's not going to bring you in a right relationship with God. None of that will. Well, then what happens? That's where God's action comes in, verses 4 to 7. Notice the contrast. But, while that was their state, it is God that initiates it. Man cannot correct it. He can't correct it religiously. He can't correct it with any ordinance, whether that be a baptism, whether it be a communion service, whether it be other ordinances that other people have, like bar mitzvahs or confessions. Nothing can do it. Nothing's going to satisfy God. And the reason I had you, I'm losing time, so I'm just going to refer to it. The reason I had us go back to the response of reading in John, John the Baptist was baptizing people. Jesus' disciples were baptizing people. Did that get them to heaven? No. Is Tim going to go to heaven because he got baptized today? No. You see, that's the way we think. That God should be pleased with all of this stuff and happy, and, and he ought to put me in heaven because of that. No. God has to take action himself because we're dead. And he said, and when you think about that, what did John the Baptist say? Here's what he said. Matthew 3 is the reference if you want to mark it down and look at it later. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was baptizing them and calling them to repentance because they needed a change of heart. They needed to be changed from the inside out. And it was so much so that when he saw religious, listen, even religious leaders coming to him, he said, you vipers, you snakes, why are you coming? Your heart isn't changed. You're coming to look good on the outside. Doesn't work. Doesn't satisfy God. And I will tell you today, if you are here as a dead person spiritually, even trying to impress people that you're alive, you can do all the religion in the face of the earth and try to make yourself feel good, and it is not going to get you in the presence of God for all eternity when judgment day comes. The only way a dead person can be made alive is for God himself to act. For God himself to act. God must do it.
I'm going to give you a very quick summary, if you watch carefully for a moment, of verses 4 to 9, then I'm going to talk about it a little bit. But here's my summary. The main subject in this passage is God. And don't take my word for it. Look at the English structure. But God. And then he gives us three verbs. Watch them. In verse 5 and verse 6. God did this. What did he do? Watch. It says in verse 5, he made us alive. He says in verse 6, he raised us up. It says again in verse 6, he seated us. God did it. God made us alive. God raised us up. Who can raise a dead person? Only God. And who can sit us in the heavenlies and put us in heaven? Only God. And I want you to notice the object of all of those verbs. Watch. He did what? He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us there. He did it all. That's a summary of those verses. God did it. He had to do it. And he's the only one that can make a person alive. Why, did he, why in the world would God ever take a dead person, someone who hates him, someone who rejects him, someone who wants to try to please him his own way and give him life? Why would he ever want to do that? He tells you in verse 4. Because he's rich. A lot of money. He's rich in mercy. We deserve death. The wages of sin is death. We deserve it. That's what we deserve. And he says those wages are death. But God was merciful. And what else? It says he's not only had rich in mercy, but because of his what? Help me. Great love. People say God loves us. God is love. He is love. How did he demonstrate that love? How did he show it? By saying that he just wants to accept whatever you're going to give him? No. By doing something for you who are dead. By saying that I love you so much, I will bear the penalty of your deadness that is sin. How will I do that? I myself will send my son, who is God with us, who will go to a cross and bear the penalty and price of that sin will be acceptable to me, and I will put it to your account, debt paid in full. Debt paid in full. And I, meaning God, will make you alive. I will sit you in the heavenlies. I will raise you up. Because only God can do it. It is God. And let me tell you something. When it talks about the fact that God was rich in mercy with his great love with which he loved us, watch. Even when we were in the state of deadness, when we were dead in our trespasses, that is in that state, as a dead person, that God raises us up and makes us alive. You say, but Pastor Dan, you don't understand. All the sins that I've committed and the things that I have done, I don't even want to talk about them, they're so bad. Really. Let me tell you something. 
There is no sin too great. There are no sins too many that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ could not pay. And there is no sin that you've ever committed, ever will commit, that could not be paid for by Christ. That's how much that great love is. And that's how much that mercy is. It doesn't matter. That's God's love. That's not the world's love. That's not the world's philosophy. That's not what the world's teaching, but that's what the word of God teaches, and that's what God did in sending Jesus Christ. Basically, what the passage really means is before salvation, for those of you who have already come to Christ, you are in the domain as a natural person of Satan, the domain of the world. And God has taken you out of that domain so that you're no longer in that domain, but now in the graces of God under the domain known as salvation in Christ. You say, well, how do I get that? How, how, how does that come about? How, do, how does God do that? And you, know, you notice I, I bounced over a couple of things kind of quickly here for time, but so that in the ages to come he might show, does it end here on earth? Does it end here with this salvation? No. He wants to show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us where in the person of Jesus Christ. It can't be found any place else. You will see it coming over and over again with Christ, in Jesus Christ, toward us in Christ. Why? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Tim is going to heaven not because of baptism, but because of faith in Jesus Christ. And anyone, that is the way they come. You see, it doesn't come through church. It doesn't come through you offering anything to God. It comes through God offering himself on your behalf. On your behalf. Well then, what does that mean? It means two things. One, that it's all of grace. And that's what he says. For by grace, verse 8, Tim quoted this verse. For by grace you have been saved. What is grace? It's exactly what it means. Grace. It was given. It is free. Now, in saying it's free, because honestly, sometimes theologically we're not careful, it was very, very costly. Not to us. To Jesus Christ. It cost him his life. To an enemy. To a dead person. But it's free to us. Watch again. For by grace, look at the end of the verse, the gift of God. That's God's gift. You say, oh, I just wish God would give me something. He has. He sent a son. The problem is still that the world is thinking just like it was before. It rejects God's grace. It rejects God's gift. It doesn't want it. It wants to appease God by church by something else. We come together to worship as we talked this morning because of what he's done for us. It's out of a grateful heart that we want to collectively. We are living, worship happens 24 hours a day, seven days a week outside of these walls. 
This is just an opportunity for us to come together and give praise to the God who gave us the gift of salvation. How is it appropriated then, Pastor Dan? There's got to be something. Yes, it's one word. It's faith. You say, I knew there was a trick to this. There's no trick. You're living by faith sitting in that pew. You live by faith when you ate breakfast this morning, that someone didn't poison that. You live by faith when you get in a plane. You live by faith when you turn the key in your car on, that it's not going to explode. You live by faith all the time. It's the same thing. The difference is God wants you to put your faith in him. What do you mean? In the work of Jesus Christ. Because it's only faith in him. It's coming to believe. It's coming to accept. I've used the demonstration many times, and the only reason I do is it's so helpful to me. It's kind of frightening. We're almost ready to get to Christmas again, but I'm not trying to rush us. But the point is this. When it comes to Christmas and there's a gift, well, let me just uh, use something uh, that I saw uh, more recently, uh, a situation where uh, I happened to be in an event where seniors were being honored, and seniors were presented not only flowers for their parents, but I saw them. They were, there were th three seniors that were graduating. It was from a college, and they had something wrapped up in paper, and it was huge. I think it was a picture of the team. I heard that, but I didn't see it myself. But that gift was handed to these girls. You know what? Not a one of them would ever get the benefit if they left that gift and said, oh, that's pretty paper. You know, that's wonderful. The coach gave me a wonderful gift. Did you get the benefit of it? I think so. Did you open it? No. Uh, why? Ah, it just looked pretty. It's, you know, it's nice theologically, but no. You don't get the benefit till you open it. You don't get the benefit till you pull that paper off and then use it. God offers salvation. God has provided salvation in Jesus Christ. The appropriation is the faith. It's taking the gift. It's basically admitting that, yes, God, I am a sinner. I'm dead. I've tried everything. It doesn't work. I humbly come before you, God, just like the sinner we find in Luke. Say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. When that happens, a person gets saved. That is what brings salvation. It is a gift of God through faith. That's the way it comes. And I didn't get a chance to spend a lot of time on it. But fellow believer, we ought to be the grateful of all people because we're God's workmanship, verse 10. Tim quoted the verse. It's God's work. It is God's love. It is God's mercy. But he has made us a new creation elsewhere, it says in Scripture. People have heard the term, you need to be born again, and that's been so abused. Why? You need to be born anew. You need to be born from above. We have All of mankind has experienced the first birth. It's physical. What did we have to do with it? Nothing. We came into the world because of our parents. What do we have to do with our second salvation? Our second life? Nothing. He raises us up. He, if you will, 
causes us to come alive? Well, in saying nothing, in a sense, but you've got to apply it, appropriate it, accept it by faith. And the only place that God provided it with his rich mercy and love was in the presence of Jesus Christ. Where do good works come in then, Pastor Dan? It's a result of salvation. Not for salvation. Verse 10 says that. We are his workmanship. You see, he made us alive. And the Ephesian saints are being reminded of that. You were dead. Why do you want to go back to that? That was the lifestyle of the dead people. But God's raised you up. He's made you alive. And your life, good works are a very important part of the believer's life. We have been called to a new life in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Listen, fellow believers, for a moment. What is your life like now? Tim said, first act of obedience, baptism didn't save him. It, it's because the scriptures call us to repent and be baptized. It's because believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. We're to be baptized. If you are here this morning and you've trusted in Christ, the first thing you should be doing, is, if you haven't been, is getting baptized in obedience. Don't delay it. There's no reason to. It's an evidence that you're truly alive, just like when a baby cries. It's an evidence that you want to follow God. We ought to bear fruit. We've learned that in the gospel according to John. Much fruit, more fruit for the glory of God. That's what should happen in the believer's life. Because we are new creations in Christ, we have created in Christ Jesus four good works that God prepared beforehand so we should walk in them. We should have, we were in the past, the walking dead. We should be the walking that are alive now and show the evidence of it in Christ as good works are produced, not in our own power, but by the Spirit of God through us. But if you haven't been made alive yet, you need to understand that you're still a walking dead person and the only way you'll be made alive is for God to raise you up. And the only way for that to be appropriated to your life personally, doesn't matter what your uncles, your aunts, your parents, your boyfriends, your girlfriends, your fellow students, it doesn't matter fellow workers what they think, this is you and God. The only way it will be appropriated is when you personally, in your heart, not just intellectually, finally bow down and say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm dead. I accept your gift that you sent through Jesus Christ as the payment for my sin. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved right there in the pew. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you. The natural man could never understand the things of God. We know the scriptures are very clear. We profess ourselves to be wise. We change the glory of God into the corruption of man. We try to appease you with feeble rituals and even things that we think could satisfy you out of a dead life. And yet, Father, you love us so much. 
and are so merciful, so rich. That love is so great that even while we're enemies, even while we're sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Father, that you could see through it all and know the heart need and that you, Father, are able to raise the most wicked sinner from death unto life. And I pray that you're moving in this room right now and that, Father, anyone in this room that has not yet come to Christ, you bring them under tremendous conviction. Help them, Father, not to be foolish, but to accept the free gift of salvation provided in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, raise them from death unto life. Help them to experience for the first time in their life peace with God, joy in their hearts, and life anew. And I pray, Father, for every believer in this room that we would be refreshed in so great salvation that you provided, that, Father, our lives would be totally yielded, that you can produce the good works in our lives, not for salvation, but as a result of salvation, that your life would be glorified in us, that others would see it and would be drawn to our Savior, and that, Father, we might just rejoice in telling others the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we look to you to accomplish these things, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.